Welcome to the Davidson Day Community Podcast. My name is Pete Moore, Head of School at Davidson Day. Each episode, you will meet different members of our supportive and diverse community. You'll hear fascinating stories from parents, board members, alumni, and the wonderful people who work at Davidson Day. In this episode of the Davidson Day Community Podcast, I am joined by our middle school and upper school theatre arts teacher, Joanna Gertie. Joanna joined Davidson Day in 2007, just as our current campus opened. Over the past 13 years, she has directed Davidson Day's vibrant and award-winning theatre program. Joanna, welcome. I'm delighted to speak with you today. Sure. So just to start us off, where were you born and what was your childhood like? I was born in a tiny little town in western Pennsylvania, about 60 miles north of Pittsburgh. The town is called Greenville, PA, because when you're from PA, you say PA, you don't say Pennsylvania. Super small town, big railroading town, steel town, very blue collar. My dad was a truck driver for R.D. Warner Company, which was a company that made and manufactured aluminum ladders and aluminum extrusions. So they called themselves the world's largest manufacturer of aluminum ladders. Woohoo. My dad drove truck for them. My parents owned bars. I grew up the kid of pub owners. We owned a couple of different bars when I was growing up. Yeah, I went to a public high school. I didn't know there was such a thing as a private school because I went to Greenville High School and I figured when I was applying to college and they put like, what are, where are you from and what high school did you go to? And I was like, what do you mean what high school did I go to? <laughs> Greenville High School. That's what they're called. Like I had yeah. no idea <laughs> that there was such a thing as anything besides public school. So I went to public school, played lots of sports, didn't do any theater, had a really actually pretty bucolic childhood. I lived in a small town. It was very rural. We had a downtown where everybody hung out on Friday nights. Stores were open till nine on Fridays. We had clothing stores and bakeries and really kind of like Norman Rockwell-ish back then. And did you live at the bar or was, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, not full time, but I mean, like, did you live above that or we something? We did. The one that they owned when I was a kid, when I was really little until I was about five, yeah, it was a big old country bar, and it had a dining room and everything. It was more like a restaurant and bar. It did have a sort of apartment above it, and, the, and we did live up there until from the time I was probably like 18 months old until I was about five. Then we moved to a different town, and they uh, bought a different bar. We did not live at that bar. And you mentioned you played sports. What sports did you play? I played softball from the time I was probably seven until I was about 12. Then somebody on the softball team said, hey, the school gives you free sneakers if you play basketball for the high school because we got free everything back then. We didn't have to buy any of it. So I tried out for the basketball team. I played basketball all through high school. I played volleyball. I actually went to college on a little tiny volleyball scholarship initially. I was on the track team, but I refused to run. I raised my hand the first day and said, yeah, I refuse to run. So I was a jumper, long jump, yeah. triple jump, high jump. So yeah, volleyball, softball, basketball track and I played rugby in college. Theatre didn't happen till later and it's my understanding that you have a political science major Mm -hmm. and so how did you get into the performing arts then? So I used to say that I wanted to be a diplomat. I wanted to like travel the world and speak a lot of languages and so I did take a lot of German in high school and I was I guess good at it so I won this big scholarship to this little college in Pennsylvania called Gannon University a little private liberal arts school in Erie, Pennsylvania. Every year they would do this test. You would have to take this test. And it was oral and it was several hours long. And the winner of the whole entire thing, and it was people from all different states, 
would get a four-year half-tuition scholarship and lots of college credits, whatever. And I went just because we used to go because it was there was a mall there and we'd go hang out at the mall all day. And I remember walking around the town where this school was and literally saying, you couldn't pay me to go to this school. And then they paid me. And I went to that school because <laughs> I won the thing, <laughs> the whole thing. My teacher came into the cafeteria one day and was like, you won, you won. And there had been some stupid drawing at school or whatever. Like, and I was like, oh, I won the candy bar or whatever, I, you know, whatever I thought it was. And she was like, no, you won the scholarship. And so then I felt like, oh, God, they're going to pay me. I have to go. So I went for a year. And I was a German, like an international studies and German major. And I loved that. But I didn't like the school. I didn't like the school. And they did something that made me really mad. They kicked out one of my favorite friends for a stupid reason. And then I decided to be a dissident and I left. And so then I transferred to a different school where they didn't have an international studies major. And the easiest thing I could do was be a um, political science major (laughs) with a German minor. And so I stuck with it because I didn't want to go to school for any, any extra time. So I was a political science major. And that was Slippery Rock University? Slippery Rock University. Which is like an, an awesome name. And it's an awesome name. Is that in PA? It is. It's really not very far from where I grew up. There's a creek called Slippery Rock Creek. This is all Native American names. This stuff was named that way. It doesn't make sense. But yeah, I had a lot of friends who went there. Honestly, it, it was kind of just an easy switch when I decided I wanted to leave Gannon. It's a fun school. Back in the day, I think it was like one of those big party schools. That's not why I went there. I went because I knew people and it was I didn't want to stay where I was and I didn't really think a whole lot more beyond that. When I realized I couldn't be an international studies major, I was like, well, that's okay. I'll do politics and, and government. And so I did that and I became a German minor, studied a little bit of Russian and started doing theater later in college for fun. And how did that begin? So I'd played all the sports in high school, so I didn't have any reason to do theater. I didn't have time to do theater in high school. I I auditioned for something once, got cast, and then had to quit before we really started because it was volleyball season and track season and whatever. So when I got to college, to that school, there was an audition notice for Agnes of God, which I had seen the movie and I loved it. And I didn't tell anyone. I was just like, I'm going to show up. I kind of always liked theater. I had a lot of friends who did theater and I, I liked it a lot. So I went to the audition, and then the next day I got, I was on the list for a callback. I didn't know what that meant, and I I really didn't. It just said you had to come back, and then that was the night I told my friends that I went and auditioned for this play, and they were like, what, are you going to be a tree? (laughs) They had no idea what, no one I knew did anything like this, so I was like, I don't know. I I got this callback. I don't know what that means, but I was on the list, and so I went back. And Agnes of God is about nuns. And so there were all these nuns at the callback. It was mostly about like, are you comfortable playing this very religious character? And you need to understand sort of their background and their ideology. And it was also a very intense play about some pretty heavy issues and stuff. So it was more about that than it was about the audition. And then they cast me and I was this mother superior in this three-person play. (laughs) This three-person play in the round was my very, very first play. So it was huge. Like they always say, I did it, and then I totally was hooked. And then I was just too late to go back and change my major because I'm too practical, and I wasn't going to stay in school extra years because I was going to change my major to theater. So I didn't. I stayed a political science major. I started taking some theater classes. I did more plays. My advisor in the poli-sci department was like, you can do independent studies. So I, I wrote an independent study paper about the relationship between Greek theater and Greek political thought. I did all this research. And so I kind of tried to meld the two a little bit. But I stayed a poli-sci major, started doing lots of theater for fun, 
got super involved in the department. Yeah, the guy who was the head of the theater department's wife was the secretary of the political science department. So it was a very inbred little community anyway. So I was kind of connected to all of it. And then after you graduate college, where did you go from there? So my sister-in-law's best friend from high school was working at the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And she said, hey, you might get in touch with Dawn. There might be some openings there or whatever. I didn't, I honestly didn't know. And, and I did get in touch with this friend of the family. And she put me in touch with some people. And I applied to some jobs. And I ended up being hired by the, let's see, the Pennsylvania House of Representatives Office of Research and Legislative Services was the office who hired me. I got this job. So I graduated in May, and in June I was moving to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I was a little research analyst, and I remember they gave us cards. You know, They gave us this big, huge box of these business cards with the state seal embossed on them and my name, and it said research analyst. And I showed my parents when they came to visit or whatever, and I showed my dad, the truck driver, bar owner, and he's like, yeah, that and a 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee. So, so <laughs> impressed with my, you know, $14,000 a year salary, my, but killer state benefits and a really fun group of people. I worked with super like-minded people. It was a lot of research and writing and I love to write. So, it, and it was one of those jobs you learned everything because you were doing research for state legislators who were answering questions that their constituents had about everything from welfare to education, to taxes, to whatever. So it was a really interesting job. We learned a lot about everything and made my way up from being a research analyst to the assistant director of the office to the director of the office. By the time I was 27, I was like managing, I don't know, I think there were like 17 people in the office and most of them were older than me, which was really strange. That was very strange to be assigning work and, you know, checking work and being in charge of people who were like my older than my parents. But it was fun. And I had an office in the dome of the Capitol for a while. Sounds and awesome. I had a giant nameplate on my door. Yeah, it looked, again, that and 50 cents. But it was really cool. And it was a fun place to be. Harrisburg's, a lot of people don't think it's that great a town. But it's a cool town. It's on a river. It's got a little vibe to it. It's very historic. I liked it a lot. So that's my next question is, how did you get from there to here? Yeah, so I was still doing theater in Harrisburg. Okay. I found one right away because that's like a great way to make friends. Yeah. If you move to a new place and you don't know how to make friends as an adult, because it's weird to make mm -hmm. friends as an adult. This was back in the days of phone books and yellow pages. So I actually looked in the yellow pages and looked for theaters, like small community theaters and stuff. And I found a couple. And it was also in the days of phone calls and answering machines. So I called and found out that this one little theater was having some auditions like that weekend or whatever. It just so happened they were having auditions for some murder mystery or something. The guy was super nice. We talked on the phone and everything. And I went to the audition and I was cast in this show. And that became my first real group of friends in Harrisburg. I got very involved in that theater that was a small, small community theater. But it's still around. It's been around forever. I ended up on their board, doing publicity on their board. I was in several plays for them. Um, after a few years there, they asked me if I wanted to direct a kid's show, and I had never directed anything. So I co-directed a kid's show called The Rude Mechanicals, which was a spinoff of Midsummer Night's Dream. They didn't know, I guess, that I was kind of a Shakespeare geek. I'm a huge Shakespeare geek. So I co-directed this little play about The Rude Mechanicals in A Midsummer Night's Dream, this little comedy. And then after that, they asked me to direct the next kid's show. So I directed another show by a local playwright. That sort of started my little directing thing and working with kids. 
And I was there the whole time I lived in Harrisburg. I worked in, in the theater. I did a lot of work in the theater. The thing about the, the house and the politics thing was that there were lots of little political gigs that people were expected to do. Even though our job was not technically political, it was government work. Mm -hmm. But there's a really fine line. So when they would want us to, like, go out in the field or go to a big political event or a fundraiser or something, I was always like, <laughs> I can't. I have rehearsal. <laughs> it's always my answer. I, I can't have a show. I have rehearsal. So, and they never cared. They just kept promoting me. It was so strange. I got out of more work gigs because I was doing theater, but they didn't seem to mind. And that was really great. And so this one friend who I worked with on one of those shows, maybe both of those kids' shows, her kids were involved. She and I had become good friends, and her husband moved here to Charlotte. He got a different job. We kept in touch through the Watts line, which was the free way to make long-distance phone calls, again, pre-internet, pre-everything. She said, you should come down here to Charlotte. It's really cool, and there's the theater down here. There's a children's theater. The kids are getting involved. I'm getting involved. They do really great work. They have this adult professional touring company. It's a paid gig. You could audition for them. I was like, where? <laughs> I didn't know the difference between Charlotte, Charlottesville, and no one yeah. does. <laughs> North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, I had no idea. We kept in touch, and she put me in touch with someone at the theater, and I called, which is weird because I don't do that, like make a phone call just out of the blue. And I actually did call, and I spoke with this woman who was running the touring company, and it was one of those things. I got on the phone with her, and I just felt like this is supposed to happen. We just connected immediately. And yes, in fact, they were, yet again, having auditions really soon. And I found a cheap flight and came to Charlotte and stayed with my friend and came to this audition and walked into the building. The light was streaming through the windows in just that way that it does in a movie when it's meant to be and you feel like you're home. And so I did. I walked into this. They called it the parlor. And it was this old building with this beautiful hardwood floors and this beautiful light literally streaming through the windows. And I felt like this is someplace I think I'm supposed to be. And the audition went really well, and they called me later that day, and they said, we want to offer you this touring company gig, but you realize the pay is worse than you make now, <laughs> and we don't offer benefits, and blah, blah, blah. Really consider this before you take it. So I went back to Harrisburg and bothered all my friends and family for a month or so while I tried to decide if I was going to sell my house and quit the job with the great benefits and move to a place I'd never even heard of. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did. It was probably the bravest thing I've ever done. I've never regretted it. I walked into the theater for the first day of rehearsals, and one of the directors who had auditioned me initially came down the steps, came around the corner and saw me, and she hugged me, and she said, Welcome home. What gave you the courage to do that, do you think? It's probably the bravest thing I've ever done. So it's not like I do those kinds of yeah. things all the time. You know, it was a series of things, and I remember talking to one of my good friends from that small theater company in Pennsylvania about all this because I was bothering everyone. Should I go? Should I do it? I don't know. And I've learned a lot more about this since then. But she goes, whatever you decide, you know, as soon as you do one thing or take one step, everything else is going to fall into place. And now I understand that a lot better. I sort of do believe in the universe will put things in, in your path. And I didn't really understand anything about that then. But when she said, whatever you decide, make one choice, and then things will start to line up. And they did. I made the choice. I guess the first choice I made was to call my friend and then the choice to actually call the theater company. And that was probably the hardest thing. Honestly, making a phone call and sitting there and waiting for somebody to answer and 
figuring out what I'm going to say and get all tongue-tied and feel stupid. That was the hardest part. And it's true. And then suddenly, well, actually, we're having auditions in the next month or so. Actually, there are really cheap flights right now. If you look them up right now, actually, you can stay with your friend for free. And in fact, you can live with her when you move there until you find a place. And it was just one thing after the other and after the other. And I don't know. I think I decided that I really did love what I did. I really loved it. I really loved all the people I worked with. I hired a bunch of them. I really liked them. And I could have stayed there. And sometimes I, I miss it and even actually think about going back there. But I think I imagined that thing that everybody says, what happens one day when you're like, that thing you always wanted to do and you never did, and then you just n never did it and you stuck where you were. And I was like, I'm not really that person. So I am going to see what happens. So I don't know what gave me the courage, but I just know it is true that if you do one thing, everything will line up. It really resonates with me because it was 2008. Chris and I were living on the beach in Australia. Like the setup was ridiculous. Like we're maybe 30 yards from the ocean. We lived in this like two bedroom apartment and we had blinds up because we get too blinding when the sun would come up over the ocean oh. in the morning. But, and, <laughs> and I worked at this incredible independent school. Chris was running a yoga and natural therapy center, teaching yoga. It was just a great setup. And we were trying to have kids. We had the unexplained infertility and we had this plan of we were going to, we both just finished our master's. We we're going to do a master's degree. She was going to do her yoga teacher training. Then we're going to have kids, then move to America. And we were trying for the kid thing, like everything else happened. And it just never happened, right? Mm -hmm. And it was really frustrating. And there was, we were told there was nothing wrong. And then one of Chris's um, colleagues at the center said, similar sort of advice. She said, go where the energy is flowing, right? And because we, we'd been talking for years about moving back to America. She, moving to America. She's from the Bay Area. And suddenly you put one foot in front of the other. For me, mm -hmm. applying for my green card and then just everything just spills from there. But it is amazing when you think back to those moments. And I remember we, we bought our tickets, said goodbye to my family. We're walking, gone through customs. And I stopped and said, this is the moment that will change our life forever. Yeah. Like, and then it's funny when you're at that, they call it the sliding doors moment. And it's interesting to be able to look back so clearly on that advice you were given at that time, how that changed those things that lined up for you. No but I kidding. just like that. It seems like the energy was flowing and had you go in that direction. So then you worked for the theater company. Tell me about that and then how it came here. So I was hired as a touring actor for the Children's Theater of Charlotte's adult professional touring company, which at the time was called the Teradiddle Players, which is just the cutest name. Teradiddle means a little white lie. It has a couple of meanings. But anyway, that was a company that had been around for, at the time, probably already 25 years. They did children's plays all over North and South Carolina into Virginia, sometimes into Georgia, mostly in you know this area, this region. I was with that company for two years, played everything from, oh gosh, who did I play? Stuart Little's mother, to the Stinky Cheese Man, to Pinocchio, <laughs> to, I don't know, we, we did lots and lots and lots of shows. That was awesome. God, talk about an awesome job. I remember walking into the very first day of rehearsal or, or standing around getting coffee during a break or whatever and looking at the other people and being like, oh, my God, is this really my job? <laughs> like, this is what I'm doing. We're in there rehearsing, which is just nothing but fun. And the people are super cool. And we have like all the time. And then when we were actually touring, we would do a couple shows a day and then we'd have like all afternoon. We'd stay at a hotel. We'd get a per diem. Like we weren't making money, but it was 
kids all loved us everywhere we went. It was like happy, joyful every single day. And the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. Like it was just so much fun. So you went all over North Carolina? Was it just North Carolina? North Carolina, South Carolina, once in a while, Southern Virginia. After I left, they started going on a regular gig for a week to the Outer Banks, which was awesome. (laughs) They didn't do that when I was there. And it was also a great thing to do as a brand new resident of a state I had never been to. I knew the state intimately and all the little backwards, because we went to a lot of really small towns and rural areas, a lot of places where kids would have no opportunity to see theater, which was really cool too. Pig farming country and like the mountains and Eastern North Carolina. I've eaten some awesome barbecue. I've eaten like the best barbecue in the state. We would always find like the best little local restaurants to eat in and roam around these little downtowns. I got a super awesome introduction and acclimation to this state just by being in this touring company, which was really cool. And then I needed to supplement my whopping income that I made as a touring actor. So I started working as an educator with the theater's education department, because they teach classes from three-year-olds to high school kids. And I started doing more and more and more of that honestly learning as I went. A lot of it was based on my own experiences, but then every single director and other teacher that I worked with, and they had a really great teacher training program too. But so yeah, I started teaching camps and classes and all ages, all grades. I developed a bunch of, as I was there for a long time, I started developing a bunch of programming and wrote some grants and we developed a lot of in-school residencies that we started to do in the elementary schools and the middle schools and the high schools. I developed a Shakespeare residency program. So we had adult touring performances of several plays that toured and an education component that I developed and trained the teachers for. We did that for several years. We had another program that was called the Drama for Healthy Living program that went into all the CMS high schools. We had one that dealt with drug and alcohol abuse, and the one that I did dealt with dating violence, dating and domestic violence, and healthy versus unhealthy relationships. So I wrote an original play that was based on a true story, but it was fictionalized about an abusive relationship. Kids from all over the area would audition for the play from all different schools. So it had a cast of eight kids. We did it both semesters, basically, and it was two different casts every time, and it traveled and toured to every single public high school every semester. (laughs) And we also had an educational component. It was part of the health curriculum to study healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships. And so I hired and trained and developed the entire curriculum for this this workshop that we did that was to teach ninth graders about what to be aware of and in relationships and stuff. We did that for about eight years. That was a really, really awesome part of the work I did there that I was really proud of. And then I directed a bunch of shows at the theater, and I acted in a bunch of shows at the theater, and I wrote some plays that toured and that were produced by the theater during my time there. I was there for about 16 years, I think. And so what brought me to Davidson Day was that I was doing a Shakespeare residency. I was teaching at the old Davidson IB school, and I passed what was a hole in the ground with a big sign that said future home of Davidson Day and I passed it a couple of days and I was like I didn't know there was a Davidson Day school and I went home one evening I must have been thinking about this I don't know but I looked it up online and in fact there was a school being built here and in fact they were said that they were hiring a whole bunch of faculty including a full-time theater director and so I sent a bunch of stuff at like four in the morning that night and heard from somebody about 10 (laughs) a.m. the next day. 
and came over to a different building. This building wasn't even built yet. Did a little sample class with some kids and had a couple of interviews. And and the next thing I knew, I was going to be working here. So that's how I ended up at Davidson Day. It was all through theater, actually. It was because I was working up here as a Shakespeare teacher. It's such an interesting route that you've taken to become a theater teacher. Was this building open when you started or you started in the other building? It was being built when I I actually did my interviews and everything at the other building. And I was hired the fall that this building opened. Okay. So I'm people probably have told you about this, but everything that got brought from the old building, a bunch of old furniture and everything, all that they had was brought in and it was piled up in the commons in the cafeteria. And people were just going in and like trying to scrounge furniture to up the classrooms. There was a bunch of furniture that was supposed to be coming in on a boat from somewhere, Denmark or somewhere. And it took forever to get here. So we were just scrounging to like put furniture in the classrooms. And I had nothing because I was brand new. I was brand new that year. There were several of us that were brand new, but there were a few that were coming from the old space too. And they were all trying to help. And here, Gertie, take this chair because it wasn't claimed. Like somebody stuck a piece of tape on it with my name on it. It was that. It was crazy. And the theater wasn't built and the gym wasn't built when we first got into this building. So I had a classroom upstairs where I taught. And the first show that we did, we did downstairs in the commons. We actually put a set in there. We put a few lights, as many lights as we could put that weren't going to blow all, because I think we threw a couple breakers to begin with. They weren't professional theater lights. They were like somebody's band lights or something. <laughs> so we did a show in there. We did Snoopy. The spring of my first year, I think... And Jason Chinundit, who I think you interviewed, played Snoopy. And he was one of the kids when I went and did my little interview, they had me talk to some kids too. And he had some serious questions for me. He was very serious as a seventh grader or sixth grader or whatever he was at the time. I remember him raising his hand and saying, I want you to know, we take our theater very seriously here and we've been doing a number of shows and musicals and I'd like to know what musicals you think you'll be performing with us here at Davidson Day. And I was like, well, none until I know you <laughs> and until we have a space to do them in, until I understand what the resources are and what your capacity is. I've n- I had no idea who these kids are. And he ended up playing Snoopy, which was pretty funny, and then went on to play pretty much every other major role in every show while he was here. And you do have a cult following, like the people who have the kids who have worked with you and been in the theater program just love what you do here. Like, why do you think the study of drama and theater is so important for students? And what can be learned by studying and practicing theater? So thank you. That's really nice of you to say. (laughs) Just before you answer, what is really one of the most frustrating things, there's so many about this year with COVID and everything, but Mm. is coming in when I was interviewing, people were saying so many awesome things about the theater program, about the work you do. I have a picture of one of your performances on my wall in my office, so I look at it all the time, but just we haven't been able to do it like that. I'm really looking forward to when things, when we get back to that. I know, right? So you asked about why it's an important thing. Yeah. I think there's so many, I mean, there's so many answers to that question, but I'm going to say this one. And that is from the time we're little kids, we play like that's what's fun about life when we're little kids. And it's how we figure out how to make sense of our world. You know, we make up stories, we make up characters, we make up situations, we play with our friends, we play with our family. It's this way of interacting that just sort of comes naturally when you're young before you realize maybe it's not natural or you feel stupid about it all of a sudden or whatever. But it's about that to me is about 
figuring out who we are and how where we fit in the world and what our stories are and what stories interest us and how we want to go about telling them. And it's how we make sense of what we feel sometimes is through this imaginative play. And we all do it. Everybody does that. It's not conscious that we're making sense of our own sort of personal drama, but we're doing it. And it's a way to communicate. It's a way to get to know other people. It's a way to understand other people. It's a way to listen actively and attentively to other people. In that sense, I think we all get to school with this sort of already inherent skill as a playwright, as an actor, as a director, as a designer, as an audience member, you know, and theater just sort of builds on that. I think as you get past that, I feel like one of the most important goals of a theater education, obviously, is to inspire creativity. It inspires confidence. It inspires this sense of community, who we are to each other. You'll always hear me say, for me, it's about what it is to be human. Theater is the one thing that sort of lets us discover in each other what it is to be human. And the more we can discover that, the more we understand each other, the more we understand that we're much more similar than we are different. We all feel, we all worry, we all hurt, we all love, all these things. It gets a little easier to take those risks and try new things and put ourselves out there and step out of our little comfort box. And if we are able to take those risks and develop our creativity, because you don't just develop your creativity, you have to feel like it's okay to do it. And you have mm-hmm. to feel like you have the time to do it. And you have to feel like that whole no one's going to think I'm stupid or make fun of me or whatever. But I think the more you understand that sense of where we're all kind of the same, really, it gets easier. And so I spend a lot of time doing that. I spend a lot of time letting kids talk and understand each other and talk about life stuff because that life stuff not only comes into play when you're playing a character or writing a scene to make it more multidimensional and real, but it also allows them to understand that, well, theater is about human beings. And it's really interesting speaking to you about this for multiple reasons, but one of the ones is that I have never done theater, right? I went to a large public high school and we had a like a very robust theater department, but it, I wasn't frankly brave enough to do it. Like it just seemed too scary. And we didn't to my, well, it's a long time ago now, but just thinking back, like I don't remember doing any sort of drama classes or anything like that. And so when I think of people who are kids or adults who do theater, I just think, man, they're so brave. Right. And so how, and I imagine you get kids coming in at all different ages or even if they've been Mm -hmm. here for a long time, just sort of looking at this as like, I can't do this. Like, how do you, help people, I guess, become comfortable with being exposed in that way in terms of like being on a stage, having sort of lights on them where they're like, oh man, that, that I just can't do that. That's too big for me. Yeah. To me, again, I think it comes back to that play thing. And so I used to teach when I first came here, I taught the toddlers all the way up to seniors. And I was in every single room, whether it was 20 minutes a day or a half hour or whatever. To do that was really great because 20 or 30 minutes with a bunch of four-year-olds doing a little creative drama, doing a story, not telling a story, not acting out a story, but just doing it, just following each other around the room, being the bunnies, then spinning around and being the grass growing or whatever we were doing. It's just fun. It's so fun. It's so active. It's so physical. It's just what you do. And so because that is kind of where kids are at that age anyway, being able to start there with those young kids, like I will say there was a kid I remember in a Montessori class one time, she's in eighth grade now, but I'll never forget we were doing some story or whatever. And she said, Miss Gertie, I can't wait one day, one day I'm going to be able to audition for one of your big plays. 
And there were lots of those little kids who did sort of make their way up. And some of that is developing relationships. Some of that is is that comfort. It, it doesn't feel different when you've started there. Yeah. And then, because it's all the same stuff. A theater education, there's lots of curricular words and definitions and a vocabulary and everything, but it's really all about exploring, discovering, playing, feeling comfortable, continuing and developing your comfort level, developing your creativity. But for me, it's my favorite thing is when a fifth grade boy who would just as soon be on the basketball court says, theater's my favorite class. Because it's fun and it is active and it is physical and it does give them a chance to do stuff they don't get to normally do. They don't have to sit at a desk. And so if you can keep that spirit of, it's fun. I mean, Shakespeare was around he was a playwright. His actors were called players. The theaters were called playhouses. The things they wrote and performed were called plays. I mean, it's all for, I don't think that's not for nothing that it's play. And then, you know, Shakespeare, it's like they have this giant book and they plop on the table in front of you. It's the complete works. Suddenly it becomes work. And I don't think it needs to be work. I think it should be. There was a girl in my class today and she's kind of a shy, more quiet, maybe slightly introverted kid who I honestly wasn't sure how much she loved theater or if it was scary to her or whatever. And she came in the room first today and said something like, oh, I missed you because I was out for a couple days. And she said, theater's my favorite class. Oh, that is which, so awesome. Which I would not have guessed that. If, yeah. if I would have had to say what that person's favorite class was, that would have... But again, I think it's just they have a chance to be... <laughs> I'll keep saying it. Just to be human and to, to be in a different space than they are in other places. And it's non-judgmental. And I also really try to teach that and instill that, that judgment is, is a specific thing. And that if you're going to use judgment, then you're actually going to use qualifying terms. It's a different thing than just experiencing it and letting it be your own experience. And that's not to say that there have also been kids who, when it was time to do a monologue for a grade, I got emails from parents saying they're petrified. Can they please just video it at home? I had one girl years and years ago who took a zero because she would not get up and do a monologue in front of her own class. She might have been like one of the valedictorians or salutatorians that year. She was a brilliant kid with great grades. She was willing to take a zero. So for some people, it's just might be a little bit scary. But I think it's it isn't just about the performing for me. In fact, it's not about the performing for me. It's just about the experience of being with people and sharing experiences and stepping into your power and out of your own little comfort zone as much as you can. What makes someone, what skills do they have that they're able to do that so convincingly? I'm going to use a qualifier. What makes a good actor? Yeah, but, right. <laughs> you know, it's so, you know, but I'm thinking more about you're watching it and mm-hmm. you're not thinking, oh, that is good acting. You just, mm-hmm. that's someone being human. Exactly. So I had an acting teacher tell me once this great little story. And I just told some of my seventh and eighth graders this story the other day about Meryl Streep. That's who I was thinking about. Like, yeah, yeah, right? Even the 7th and 8th graders, most of them at least, like, do know who she is. So she is someone I would consider one of the best actors of this, whatever, several decades. And so apparently this story, and I don't know how true this is, and I don't know who the other person was, but it's a great story, and it kind of answers your question. So she was in a movie with some young up-and-coming woman, 
and the woman was super excited to be in this scene with Meryl Streep. And it was a scene, I think sat, I think they were across from each other at a table or something, and Meryl Streep kept saying to the director, you could probably just give her that line or whatever. I don't, I don't probably need to say that line. Why don't, you, why don't you let her say it? And the young woman is like, oh my God, Meryl Streep's giving, giving away all her lines. I'm saying Meryl Streep's line. Like, this is awesome. And when the scene was finally shot, what Meryl Streep knew that this girl didn't know was that, well, maybe she didn't know it, and it wasn't something she was doing maliciously. I think she just recognized that this is what the scene needed. There was a camera over each of their shoulders, and when they edited the scene, pretty much the entire scene, although they were both speaking, the camera was honed in on Meryl Streep's face while she listened and reacted and responded to this girl who was saying all the words, right? So to me, it's what you're doing. It is being human. It's how you honestly respond to situations. What do you really feel like when this thing happens? It isn't about just saying the words on the page, and it isn't about... It's about your real, true inner life and how you experience the things that are happening in this story and how much you can connect to your real, true, and honest, authentic experiences when this piece of information is delivered or this experience happens in the story. And you might not have ever had that experience, but you might have had an experience similar or something that you can relate to emotionally in a really similar way. And then how to connect to that honestly, not pretending to do it. It's not pretend, it's taking, yeah, it's, I mean, although that Ian McKellen will say, I'm pretending. When I'm Gandalf, the great wizard, I'm not, I'm actually not a wizard, you know? <laughs> I'm Sir Ian pretending to be Gandalf. Sir Ian Gandalf. And he has this great Saturday Night Live skit about that. But it is pretending. It's putting yourself in a set of false circumstances. But those false circumstances have to be real for you in that moment and losing yourself in it and feeling comfortable enough to have that experience without worrying about how it's being perceived, but just being there. I mean, what we're doing right now in some of my classes is it's all about silence. It's all about this several seconds of silence in a scene and what happens during that silence and it's really hard for people but for me that's sometimes some of the most compelling stuff just watching somebody feel and think and be and I think kids surprise themselves a lot if they let themselves but it comes back down to will they feel comfortable doing that here in a school setting with a bunch of their friends who they might feel too embarrassed around so what makes a good actor I mean there's a million things I don't know but I think it's being true to whatever the story is, whatever the situation is, and allowing yourself to have an honest experience. Jumping back a little bit, how long were you here before the theatre was built? I think it was built in like the second year, I think, because we did Snoopy and the Commons. And then the following winter, we did the best Christmas pageant ever. The theatre building was built, the room was built, but it was just a big old room. It was a big box. There were folding chairs. It was a big joke because there was a concrete slab on the stage and some walls. There were no backs, you know, there's no backstage or wings or anything. It was just basically a room with a concrete slab in the front of it. Didn't have any lights, didn't have any booth, it didn't have any equipment, nothing theatrical, no curtains, no grid to hang anything off of, just a big room with a slab. So the building was built, the theater was built, and it's slowly become the place it is now. In a typical year, what's the structure? Like how many plays do you do? Who's involved? So it's changed a lot over the years. In a typical year, we would have auditions for the first sort of big show fairly soon after arriving at school, at the end of August. We would kick in 
after Labor Day. The first show, would usually we have a big show in November-ish, depending. Sometimes if we do an outdoor show, it'll be October. Those are often straight plays, sometimes Shakespeare, sometimes whatever they are. And then I have a performance ensemble, a high school performance ensemble, that in every other year besides this, they do a fall show that sometimes might have something more of a social issue bent to it. Also, we Do you also, write them? No. Those have all been scripted. Okay. But then my high school theater classes, depending on the rotation that we're in, depending on the year, they do a playwriting unit, depending on the year. They're doing it this year, actually. But that results in a 10-minute play, sort of showcase slash festival. Those are student-written, student-directed, student-performed. Those usually happen in the spring. Normally, we do an improv comedy show in the fall. There is a musical review in the late spring that has involved theater students, songs from musical theater, and then also the contemporary ensemble plays for those. So it's a big music event. And then we do a spring musical that we audition for a couple weeks after the first one closes. (laughs) That happens in usually March. We will do whatever the second performance ensemble show is, plus the 10-minute play thing or something else that the other high school students will be involved with. So we used to do a fifth and sixth grade big production every year that was part of a kind of an interdisciplinary project that was around a theme. We did that for many years. So that fit into that sort of January, February slot. There were several years that I think we had 12 productions. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Some in of them like were nine, 10 months. Yeah. At crazy. Now it's probably, and that includes like the musical review and the yeah, improv show, yeah. but, but still it's a lot. And so now it's down to probably eight or nine. <laughs> down to. Down to. <laughs> Yeah. So they get a lot of chances to perform, which is really cool. And when you say they audition, what grades can audition? Most of the time, we open it up sort of from 7th to 12th grade to audition for what we call like Davidson Day Theater. They do have opportunities to perform when they're younger. Mm -hmm. That's still a good six-year run where you can be... Yes. Yeah. And I think it's really important because, you know, that's theater. Like if a play requires that there are 12-year-olds and 75-year-olds, that's what it is. And so I think it's – and it's also we have such a small community here. We need the people. We have a really, really, really tiny bench. But it gives younger kids a chance to learn from older kids and older kids a chance to sort of be mentors. And quite frankly, age doesn't always equal talent. There can be super young kids who are really talented. So, yeah, they get to audition usually from around seventh grade. I was talking to students once, they were having some issues and we were talking about how we can improve the culture of the class and all of these different things. And one of the things we were talking about was, I floated the question like, why are you all in this room together? And they said, oh, well, because I guess our parents sent us here. And I said, what else? And someone said, I guess we're the same age. I'm like, yeah. They were in elementary school. I said, when you're this age, it sort of matters, even through like high school. It, we all put you together with people the same age. But once you get out in the real world, you're dealing with people. We all have friends who are much younger than you, much older than right. you. I just really love the opportunities in schools when there are those authentic connections with children a year older, a year younger, a couple of years old. Like it just, it's really good because you end up finding, oh, my peeps might be a grade older than me. Absolutely. Or, or and there's not, sometimes you think, oh, they're younger than me. I have friends that are 10, oh 15 God. years younger than oh, me. Oh, I do like, too. It's, it's so, like very close friends. So it's just an interesting thing. And I, my daughter's experiencing that. She's, play, she's in fifth grade Ruby and she's mm-hmm. experienced, she's playing soccer with kids and they're yeah. eighth graders. And it's so great for her just interacting with kids, girls, who great role models who are just oh that bit older than her. So I'm, it's great to hear that with the ages. So I'm curious, how would you define creativity? 
That is such a big question. I was about to say, I, that's a tough I, question. It's a giant yeah. question. The first thing that pops into my head is that you're never satisfied. Like mm. someone who's just never satisfied with like the first thing that pops into your head. I think about like, well, who are the people I think are really creative and, and why are they so creative? And, and I don't know. I, th- I think it's for me, I tend to have an idea then I scrub a floor or something <laughs> while doing manual labor and I just let it kind of marinate and marinate and then more and more questions pop into my head and for me it's time and it's not being satisfied with the first answer and it's rolling stuff around and I always I often will tell people too it's the sort of what ifs keep asking what if well I have this idea and then this is what it would be well what if this da, da, da. or then asking why mm. well this is the thing and this this would happen well why would that happen well because of and then why would and and it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and I think you start coming up with what is actually important because then you start making it personal <laughs> again kind of human it starts to be well what is this idea well this idea it might be really beautiful but you know you look at a beautiful painting why do you think it's a beautiful painting well because it resonates somewhere and it fe- you feel something when you look at it you listen to an amazing piece of music why do you think it's an amazing piece of music something about it connects somewhere and for me when it's a piece of theater it's always going to be about finding the pictures, the stage pictures, the colors, the images, the things that people will connect to when they're sitting there. When they're sitting there watching, they're not just watching kind of tuned out, but they're they're discovering themselves in it. But it's also to me, it's also not being lazy. It's back to that not always taking the first thing. I was doing something today with somebody and they were actually writing a Again, this moments of silence thing, and it's really hard for these. This is this isn't a scene with dialogue. This is a scenario that requires people to have at least ten seconds of silent interaction. And this student was had come up with this idea that it was during a war, and the wife was home, and her husband had been gone a long time, and she had thought maybe he was dead. And she's like in the kitchen washing dishes, and she senses that he's in the room, and she turns around, and he's there. That's what sort of evokes. There's silence, but then I started asking questions. Well, what if, what if, is there a tangible thing that's shared between them that maybe she gave him when he left that when she turns around, he has set it on the table and she sees it first. And when she's washing the dishes, what's significant about that? Like everything should be significant. It isn't just, well, they're in a house. It's why, what's that place have to do with this story and this relationship? And why do you care? Why do we care? What is it about this moment that means something to the people in the story and then therefore for us and when I said oh god well maybe it's a thing that he's given her or she's given him and she oh my god I just got chills oh my god oh my god and she said to me you're so creative and I was like huh it's just that you keep thinking you Mm. keep going with with the story and the relationship and what makes it special and what makes it interesting and if you were in that situation what would make it meaningful well something that connected those people you know what I mean so for me it's I don't know I just think it's about the stuff you think about when you're not really thinking about anything and what pops into your head. People say in the shower. For me, it's yeah. when I'm cleaning or running or, you know, riding yeah. a motorcycle. I don't know. Stuff that pops into your head. And then what do you do with it? What do you think? <laughs> no, it's interesting because I've mentioned this to some people before, but my wife, Chris, is a published writer and she's written poetry and thing and prose and been published in magazines and things. And there's an author who writes about writing named Julia Cameron. And she mm-hmm. says... The Artist's Way. The Artist's Way. I know her. Yeah. I think The Vein of Gold as well. And she's mm-hmm. written a great book called The Right to Write, which mm-hmm. I think is clever. That's clever. And then, but she says, great writing is rewriting. 
And I just love that. Like, it's just that constantly redoing it. And when you were talking, I was, I was thinking, oh, the, you're asking questions constantly. You're mm-hmm. not just like, well, this is, I'm done. You're this, not done. Yeah. That's huge. That's what I often think in, in terms of creativity is just the the reimagining. I'm reading this really good book by Adam Grant at the moment. It's called Think Again. And mm-hmm. it's just so how do you rethink things have always been going on a certain way? How can you think about how that could be done rather than going, this is the way it's always been done? But it's just really fascinating. So, I mean, it's often overused in sort of edu- not so much educational circles. Maybe it's happening now, but sort of innovative circles is like iteration, like how are we iterating? And but that means like, well, what are we doing? We had the first version of the iPhone. Are we just happy with that? No, right. like let's the twelve or thirteen in. You know, we right. it's the finish. There's not like a finished product. This thing will always be sort of evolving. So now we're going to move into our rapid fire questions. What is the book or books you most frequently recommend to others? Okay, it has to be rapid fire. I'm going to say a prayer for Owen Meany. You can take your time, sorry. (laughs) I know. That's just my all-time favorite book, and in a nutshell, because I think it's about love and compassion. I'm not familiar with it. You're not? No. Oh, my God. It is my all-time favorite book, and it's funny because there are so many people who will say, oh, my God, that's my all-time favorite book. Really? I don't know. It's just about a kid who thinks his destiny is to make some, like, to sort of basically save the world. And he kind of does in his own way. But the character is just one of those people when you close the book, you're God, oh, my God, I wish that person was real and alive. That's probably my all-time favorite book. Awesome. Yeah, uh, there are several. I've been reading a lot lately, so it's hard. But that's, I'll just, that's my go-to. And what are some things you love doing in your free time? There was a time I, I would answer that and say I could play volleyball 24-7, but I can barely even get the ball over the net anymore. So... I don't know. I can nerd out. I can go on Duolingo and like st- I still study languages. I'm studying Italian and I still kind of dabble in German. I don't know. I dig in the dirt. I like to play around in the dirt and plant things and listen to audiobooks. That's my nerding out. I did buy an old 95 Miata last year, so I'm super excited to like be have the wind in my hair. That is awesome. <laughs> and I have a motorcycle, so I when I have time, actual time, I, there's nothing like being outside and driving with the wind and the smells and nature and like just it's it's very zen. It's very quiet. If you could learn a new skill, what would it be and why? I want the chip that allows you to be able to speak and understand every language in the world. I swear to God, it's going to happen one of these days. I really, if I could, if I could spend my time now, honestly, doing something, I could study language. That's the other thing I could do with my free time. But yeah, I want to speak all the time speak and understand all the languages. I'd also love to be a ski bum, <laughs> a ski instructor in some beautiful place. Some, you know, that would be really cool. I, I can ski, but not really. I used to work at the Chinese American International School in San Francisco. And so the kids would leave eighth grade. It was a Chinese immersion school and their level of Chinese. And most of them had no background before coming to the school and would so proficient they'd be able to speak Chinese teach Chinese at a university. It was just the the doors that unlocked, we would send the kids over to China and to to Taiwan and things. And just the doors it would unlock for them just to go in these different places around the world and converse. I was always so jealous. Oh, I know. I don't speak another language. Just to be able to 
talk to people, really talk, not say things like the cow eats yeah. grass, you know, yeah. <laughs> me talk pretty one day. Yeah. I've been lucky enough to go to China a few times and it's just such a remarkable place and so diverse and, mm. and, and just to think that you could just go, it doesn't have to be China, it could be anywhere, like if yeah. you speak another language, but just spending time with people who their life is completely different to yours and you're just conversing openly. I yeah. know, I know. And you know, I talk, obviously, you're, I'm, I talk all the time. So being somewhere where I can't speak the language, they think I'm quiet, which is funny. <laughs> In the last five years, what new belief, habit or behavior has most improved your life? The idea that thoughts become things, that's something I learned several years ago and I've sort of stuck with the whole power of intention, science of mind, the power of gratitude, believing that whatever you whatever I think can I can actually manifest the idea of manifesting reality based on the things that I want and believe in um, that's that's been huge for me it's ancient wisdom I, it's interesting mm-hmm. that there's uh, one of the <laughs> earliest lines ever written in Buddhism is mine is the forerunner of all things mm-hmm. and something like as you think that is how you will act in the world and it's just being very conscious of our thoughts because if you think no one likes me yeah. i don't have any friends oh like, and then you you end up acting yeah. that way you or do. responding that way and it's and there's another great line it says like whether you think you can or you think you can't you're right you're right yeah exactly and so you can get all sort of like esoteric <laughs> about it like in turn but and then or you can just say hey like if i think negative thoughts all the time then probably i'm going to have negative interactions more frequently than Absolutely. if i didn't yeah oh my god it's so true and that that is something i've learned and it's totally impacted and changed my life what advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a similar career to yours learn i think really learn what people care about and again <laughs> really discover who you are and how you fit into the world and sure of course if you want to i mean i didn't pursue my career through a typical path yeah and i'm a firm believer that that works. It's okay. Totally worked for me again, because I guess I wanted it to be and I made it happen. But just if it's something that you truly, truly, truly want, again, take the time and not be satisfied. And if you really believe that it's something that you can do, then be the best you can be at it. And not just the best in terms of talent, but really put yourself out there. Final one, what inspires you? Honestly, again, you could say so many things to that. And the first thing I think about is old buildings. So I love Europe. I love being in towns where the buildings are centuries old. This country, not so old, but I don't know. I can stand in an old building and and literally just get chills or stand there and grin. And I just, being in a place where there have been all these people before us who have been in these rooms, who have been in love, who have felt things, who have broken up with people, who have discovered horrible things or wonderful things or invented something or, I don't know, like had family dinners, had eureka moments. Like it's like that kind of thing. When I'm in a building, that's what I get when I'm in an old building. I just feel like, you know, they say if these walls could talk or whatever, but I really feel like the building has seen all this stuff. And when I'm in it, I mean, I went to Shakespeare's house in Stratford like a geek and, you know, got down on my hands and knees and like touched the floor. (laughs) Like, I was so like, oh, my God, he was in this room. The reason it's inspiring is that we're not alone. Like, yeah. everybody's done this. For countless eons, people have done what we're doing. They've, we're not that different. Again, we're not that different. We're human. Like, it's all that same stuff. And I sometimes when I'm in an old building, I just feel like I get all of that. And 
if they could do it, if they managed, they figured stuff out, they lived lives, we can do it too. So I guess that's why it's inspiring. But it's, and then things like, you know, really great writing, Shakespeare, I get real inspired and real giddy and excited. Really great teaching when somebody actually is, is doing it and I can tell that they've developed a whole sort of arc and they've put things together to give people a particular experience and I know that they've really given a lot of conscious thought to it, that I get excited about that. Thank you so much. Sure. <laughs> That's it. Well, this has been a ton of fun. It's amazing how quickly this time has I know, gone. Right? I've really loved this and... I so appreciate all your time. Well, Thanks so thank much. thank you so much. You've been listening to the Davidson Day School Community Podcast, which is hosted by Pete Moore, head of school at Davidson Day. The podcast is recorded on campus in the heart of the Lake Norman area. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear them. Email your thoughts to podcasts at davidsonday.org. That's podcasts at davidsonday.org.